Well, hello and welcome to Consumer Choice Radio. We're back at it again. I'm one half of your host, Yael Ososki, kicking it back in the Central European studio. And I've got David Clement, my uh, trusty colleague and co-host of the program, uh, who's over there in the Ontario studio. David, how goes it? Oh, it's going well. Uh, it's going well. Um, yeah. Uh, lots to talk about. Are you ready? You... Yeah, you want to do a little bit of a board meeting, by the way? Okay, sure, yeah. Let's do, yeah, let's do a little bit of a consumer choice radio board meeting. So, David, we've been talking back and forth about different elements of the program. Obviously, those of you who are listening on Saga 960 AM in the Ontario uh, area, also on Big Talker Network, you know that we have a podcast version of this program that we also produce on our website, consumerchoiceradio.com. Uh, we've been thinking about doing some longer form interviews that we'd like to put up. Uh, radio is great. Thank you guys for tuning in, tuning in your dial at 1 p.m. Eastern, making sure that you're able to listen to the insight and the interviews that we provide. But we know radio is often a, a small format in terms of big ideas, <laughs> if I can frame it that way. And we always want to do longer form stuff, David. So I was kind of wondering here at the board meeting if I could table the proposal that uh, we do longer form interviews, we'll play some of the clips on the radio version, but that we really would encourage a lot of the the audience to go and subscribe to the podcast version uh, that they can have on their their Apple podcast, the Spotify, you know, Google podcast, whatever it might be, or perhaps podcasting 2.0. But we want to offer that as a sort of end product, because I think there's a lot of interesting people we'd love to talk to. We just want to be able to do it more than 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that would be really good. I mean, um, it's really crazy how fast 15 minutes goes. Um, and some of our guests, we just have so much to uh, so much to chat about. There's a lot more to, to discuss and get into. So uh, I think that's a good Very idea. true. And I know that um, I know that you came to the table uh, ready with plenty of clips. Um, I did want to play my own Let's hear it. Uh, to start us off. Uh, we had a great segment uh, last week, where we discussed um, Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, uh, which is a very important thing. I think there will probably be some ramifications or talking points around that uh, for years to come. I think it's a bit underplayed in the media, actually, uh, just because there is so much other stuff going on. Um, you know, we do have someone like, um, I don't know, I guess Trump in the news again. Because you'd be in jail. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to have to get to <laughs> that. There, there, there's some some Trump stuff, um, but I want to go ahead and play this clip. Let me know if you can hear this. You know, it's interesting. I think um, lately I've been studying, looking at a lot of history of previous periods of great power. Okay, you, oh, you yeah. can hear that, right? Okay, good. So this is on a, on an Australian program called Q and A, and uh, this is a similar to your British shows. Uh, I think they call them the panel. I think it might also be called Q and A. They have it on the BBC. Uh, you just have a, a panel of uh, so-called experts, sometimes politicians, uh, business people, uh, policy experts, and you have an ordinary audience. And the audience is, is permitted to ask questions. Um, sometimes they have a back and forth. It makes for great television. Um, do, is there a Canadian version of this? Is there anything similar? Um, I don't think so. I barely think there's anything in the yeah. U.S. I mean, the closest thing was like uh, Jerry Springer and Maori, <laughs> or, or like the audience, you know, hey, yo, uh, you are the father. So, um, 
But this uh, is from someone that um, I've been trying to get on the show for a while. Um, so he is not yet a friend of the show, uh, but I believe will be very soon. Uh, this is Senator James Patterson. Uh, he is uh, the Australian senator, one of them for the state of Victoria. Uh, that's where Melbourne is. And uh, he's talking about uh, Taiwan, the CCP. Uh, he's one of the most ardent, uh, I think, supporters of liberal democracies. And considering Australia is so close there uh, to China, uh, they actually have a very articulate policy on this. I, I wanted to play a clip uh, from him. Absolutely unnecessary. James Patterson. The reason why the Chinese Communist Party is labelled as the biggest national security threat to Australia is because they are. Uh, right now, today... Right now, today, we are under near constant attack in the cyber realm from the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's the government or our critical infrastructure. Over the last five years, we have suffered record levels of foreign interference and espionage, and the Chinese government is the primary culprit of that. Right now, the Chinese government is acquiring military capability at the fastest pace of any nation in the world since World War II, and I think the evidence shows they're not just doing that for the fun of it. They have reclaimed islands in the South China Sea illegally, although Xi Jinping pr promised that he wouldn't. They have just fired ballistic missiles over Taiwan into Japan's exclusive economic zone. If we are not going to take this seriously threat, threat very seriously, we're going to regret it. How to get in those yeah. claps? Um, so that's Senator Patterson. Look, we don't we don't hear this level of articulation. I think from North American politicians. No. I don't know if you would agree or disagree, but uh, what, what did you think of Senator uh, Patterson's uh, spiel there on the Q and A? Well, I show? think he's he's spot on. Um, I mean, it's a little more pressing for the Aussies, just given their proximity. Um, so I think that's probably why it's that type that level of conversation is more front of mind. Um, but yeah, he's right. Uh, I mean, it, the same goes for Canada. You could have someone, um, you could have a Canadian politician say those exact words in a different accent, and that would be accurate. Um, so it's spot on. It's refreshing to hear a uh, a more honest ex explanation of, of what's going on. Um, yeah, and he's from the Australian Liberal Party, which I assure you is not like the Canadian Liberal Party. No. <laughs> uh, Liberal Party, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was very good. He, he had some other uh, quips about Taiwan. I'll put the clip in the show notes over there, consumerchoiceradio.com. And, you know, this stuff is, very, is, is important. I was at a conference uh, a few weeks ago in Atlanta, if you guys remember the uh, Hello Atlanta episode. And there were a lot of proposals. There's a lot of conversations about the influence of particularly Chinese companies on our state institutions and levels of government and whether uh, government services should be contracting uh, various you know, Chinese uh, manufacturers or suppliers of technology and all, all the rest. We've already discussed on this program a good amount Huawei and many of the problems there, uh, which is perhaps making a, another re-entrance into Canadian politics and the leadership race. But I, I don't know where the populace is on this. It, it seems that it's not necessarily front of mind for Important reasons. Um, there's inflation. By the way, inflation at, at 0%, David. Um, <laughs> all kinds of... Inflation's in the news, which is doing a lot. So I had assumed that is is putting the China stuff a bit on the back burner. Yeah. I mean, in the Canadian context, for whatever reason, one of like the standard quips in, in the political conversation here is that Canadians don't vote. 
on foreign policy issues. Um, so that's probably part of the reason why it's always in the background. It's never like really front of mind. Um, you're not going to see someone gain in popularity by talking a lot about foreign policy. Um, I mean, there are other things in the news. Inflation. I, I love the that Twitter had to label Biden's tweet about inflation with him saying that it was oh zero percent this month, and it's like, no, it was a zero percent increase this month, which still leaves it over eight <laughs> percent. Um. So yeah, I, I don't know. So so I I, I will say, and I, I made a. A part, a, a shot across the bow, I believe is the term, um, to some of your your fellow uh, Substack neoliberals, uh, because they went all in on this. Yeah, they went full. Um, I called it Biden stand <sighs> on the the monthly inflation. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar, talking about uh, people like Joe Wiesenthal, uh, Matty Glacius, uh, what's his name there, Noah. Yeah, yeah, Noah, Bloomberg, Noah Smith name. or something. Yes, yeah, some normal name. Uh, so they are all in on this, and they say, well, of course, let's look at the data. And uh, I use the meme um, from the Big Lebowski, market zero, because uh, that's exactly what you know they're, they're trying to claim. And I this is what we lost in the Trump era, were these small massaging of language to make things seem more palatable. Because I remember that early in politics. This is everything with the Bush administration. I mean, absolutely everything with Trudeau. Yeah. <laughs> everything with Obama. With the Trump era, all of that just kind of went away because he would just kind of go a bit more bombastic, and every single media outlet would, you know, race to debunk, or they'd use the without evidence thing in the headline. Uh, but when this happens, I, I don't know. Are you seeing appropriate pushback on this? Because look, at, I, I went to the store, you know, last week. I, I was in the grocery store and. Um, yeah, there was no zero percent. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, it didn't increase in the last 30 days, but, you know, that's, that's probably nothing to do with government and everything to do with people just realizing that stuff is more expensive and just staying home and, and not buying as much. Yeah, I, I mean, it's still very much there. Um, you're going to the grocery store, you're buying... <sighs> everything um i mean it's 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 not good um really really not good and so the the thing is is that when they try and massage the language to zero percent oh like what a great success i mean the reality is is that the price of gas came down a little bit and that helped um for everything else it's like i mean the price of gas came down a little bit we see this with housing as well. People be like, oh, a bank is predicting that uh, GTA home prices are going to go down 25%. And it's like, well, they increased like 75% in the last two years. So, yeah, it's like down from its high, but it's still exceptionally higher than, than where it was before things got crazy. And so um, the thing is, when when they're massaging the language like this, for ordinary people, let's say you turn on the news and this is what you see, it just doesn't reflect your real life. And that's where you get that irritation and that frustration and 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 all of that where people are like, yeah, but where was that in my grocery bill or like whatever other bills you have? Um, how many emails are we getting from like any of your pre-authorized payments? 
that are like, hey, we actually had to increase the price a little bit because of inflation. <laughs> and so it just doesn't map over reality for a lot of people. Um, and then you go, and for Americans, then you got to add in these 85,000 new IRS agents. <laughs> oh, 87. Oh, I undercounted. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, the first time I was conscious about it and did push back in the forum that I could, which is as writing as a journalist, was in the saved or created memes of the Obama admin, uh, to where, you know, we saved or created a million jobs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, what does saved mean? I mean that that you could you could say that for basically everything. Hey, look, the economy has not collapsed just yet, so we've saved two hundred million jobs. Yeah, but what kind of metric is that? I mean, if you presented that in a, a bachelor thesis, you know, you get rejected the second you walked in. Uh, but when it comes to uh, government and a lot of the media establishment, uh, which is why you guys listen to this radio program to hopefully have somewhat of an alternative and a consumer friendly direction. It, it just sort of is accepted, and I think that's where we're re-entering the banal normalcy of uh, federal politics, at least in the U.S. Um, I would hope there's more pushback in Canada at this point after, I don't know, what is it, seven years of the Trudeau experiment, but it really doesn't seem that way. Maybe you have a different take. Well, the thing is, is we're not really seeing it because the opposition is, like, the NDP in opposition is focused on propping up the liberals, and the conservatives are focused on cannibalizing each other in a leadership race. So the, the heat isn't on the government like it usually is. After the end of the conservative leadership race, I think we'll start to see that ramp up because the, the target will not be your fellow leadership candidates, it will be the government. Um, and so I think it will come. Uh, it's just not now because the parties in parliament are focused on other things. Um, but that will change. Give it a month and that will change. Yeah, and we're also in the sort of summer session. So it's only the uh, larger bills or programs. A lot of people are on vacation. Uh, many of you are probably in vacation right now. Maybe you're a uh, you know, listening to this while you're on the beach in Mexico, um, having a Mai Tai or, uh, you know, margarita. So I do say enjoy. Uh, but David, I know we got a couple other things to get to in the news. Uh, a lot having to do with the big bills. Uh, you mentioned the IRS agents, uh, which, yeah, that should make all of us feel great. There are 700 billionaires and there's going to be a, a, about 87,000 new IRS agents. <laughs> so uh, I guess they're going to have to find some middle class people to go after. Uh, more on that here on Consumer Choice Radio. We'll be right back after this. Back at the mic once more. Consumer Choice Radio broadcasting on Saga 960 AM in the Big Talker Network. Also there on your podcast apps. Be sure you subscribe. Apple, Spotify, Google, or if you're one of those people, Stitcher. No worries. We're there and everywhere. Uh, so, David, we covered a little bit about um, what's happening with uh, some of the IRS stuff. But before we get into that, uh, we were just mentioning it off air um, to the studio producer who is invisible and we don't have. Uh, a little bit about blood plasma, and uh, this is something that you've uh, written about. Uh, going back a while, you've uh, received some shots in the press, as it were, and uh, now there is a, a long-standing ch or a big change uh, that will be happening on the blood plasma realm in Canada. So are, are you telling me that Canada is going more like Europe, and that's reason to celebrate? 
Yeah, so I'll give I'll give the quickest synopsis of this. Um, so essentially, uh, blood plasma is more intrusive when you donate it, but it's really important. It it like there are a lot of people with a variety of dis- disorders who need the uh, therapies generated from blood plasma in order to live. Um, our current model for the most part, is entirely voluntary. And in fact, in many provinces, it's illegal to compensate donors uh, for donating their blood plasma. Um, And what that has resulted in is a huge shortage. So I think Canada produces 13% of what it needs in regards to blood plasma, and we import uh, 80% of our plasma therapies from the U.S. And the reason why that's relevant is because in the U.S., what do they do? They compensate blood plasma donors. So we have this huge layer of hypocrisy where folks on the progressive left want to ban compensation for blood plasma uh, while we import paid blood plasma from the United States. And so the question is, why would we ban it here but then rely on it from somewhere else? So I wrote about this. Be in jail. <laughs> I wrote about this years ago. Took a lot of heat, a lot of heat. Um, the the president of QP wrote a response article to mine, inferring that I was paid for by Big Blood and all this nonsense, which of course is not Big true. Blood on the scene. Yeah, uh, but news broke earlier this month that Canadian Blood Services, the organization that collects blood plasma publicly in Canada and blood, uh, is going to partner with a big company called Griffles which means they are going to start compensating people for blood plasma across the country. So, Oh, the horror. Drumroll, oh, please. I was right. Um, all of the freaking out was, was nonsense. Um, I mean, really, all it was is, was just naked self-preservation. I mean, you, if someone's listening, they're like, well, why would Cupy care about how blood plasma is collected? Well, the answer is that it's their employees who work for Canadian Blood Services. Um, who get paid to draw blood plasma uh, through a partnership with with Griffles, it is unlikely that public sector employees will be the ones uh, operating these clinics. Um, And so their their jobs, in air quotes, are threatened. Uh, And that's all it is. It's just them trying to preserve um, their jobs and their position. But it's a great move. It means that we can maybe be a little more self-sustainable. And at some point down the road, you'll be able to get paid to donate your blood plasma, um, which I think is really fantastic because it incentivizes people to do it and we don't have enough of it. So, Yeah, I and mean, we saw a friend of the show, Peter Jaworski, was interviewed on CBC The National um, a couple of days ago, uh, which is very cool to see. Good to know that the um, the ideas are being perpetuated again in the mainstream um, I know I shared this on the program before, uh, but I here in the country that I'm living in at the moment, Austria, we do have these um, donations uh, where people can give blood, and then they do receive payment. And uh, there's an entire uh, sort of loyalty program where after giving four times, you know, you get this other bonus amount. And uh, I looked into it, you know, who owns this uh, particular clinic? Uh, you know, it is a private company, uh, but it actually is owned by a Japanese pharmaceutical company called Takeda. 
um, which sounds like a standard Japanese name. Yes. <laughs> um, huge company. They do a lot of stuff. They do a lot of things with uh, chemicals, uh, drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals, a lot of stuff with diabetes. Um, they've done a lot of different acquisitions across um, both the U.S. and Canada, actually. And they maintain this clinic in order to have the blood to use for many of their uh, different clinical treatments, uh, to come up with new cures, uh, also to help people in need who might need that blood plasma. And, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what happens when people are left to their own devices in, in the market to provide services? And, you know, if people are able to get payments, all the better. Uh, it's just strange that uh, it's, it's like a, it's sort of like a teacher's union-esque move to try to block this, you know, from like <laughs> members of a particular, you know, working uh, uh, public sector unit. You know, it's, it's just strange that this is such an issue. And the thing is, is that you can tell it's just naked self-preservation because the arguments that they make are, um, are just downright false. I mean, one of them is that it's less safe if we're paying people for, for their blood plasma. Well, we know that's not true because we get 80% of our plasma therapies from paid donors in the U.S. None of these added people... To that, added to that, by the way, they do a very... Um, intensive screening of the donors so that, you know, you can't have any active diseases, you can't have any active infections. Um, it's not as if, you know, everybody who's in downtown Vancouver um, shooting up, you know, in between their syringe hits can just go down and give blood plasma. Um, I was actually rejected when I went. Uh, darn the pimples. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's they're very you know, strict about this. I, I don't know what this claim is. It's just, it's very bizarre. Yeah, I mean, and if it were true, these people would be pushing for a ban on American plasma, but they're not because they know that we would have no blood plasma <laughs> if that was the case. Um, another funny claim that they made is that by paying people for plasma, they won't donate blood anymore. Um, but all of the research actually suggests the opposite. The thing that really grinds my gears is that Don Davies, the NDP health critic, critic, cited Hungary as the example of where they're crowding out um, blood donors, right? The, the concept is, is like, if you're going to donate, you'll pick the paid option, you won't donate blood, and then we'll have less blood. We'll have more plasma, but less blood. And that would be bad. Um, so he highlights Hungary, but it's actually prohibited in Hungary to donate plasma and not donate blood. They require you to donate blood when you donate plasma. So, it, like, it just absolute falsehoods all around. Um, but you know what? We won. I was right. Tom Korski at Blacklocks can, uh, can uh, enjoy my victory lap for giving me such a hard time years ago and implying that I was some sort of lunatic who cared about this issue. Um, so, uh, Tom, if you're listening, which you're probably not, I hope you, uh, you feel bad for being a, a goof. Um, and yeah, you know, it feels good. It, I feel vindicated. Um, I, I look forward to continuing my victory lap um, and, and then eventually concluding my victory lap by donating plasma at some point and getting paid for it lovely nice little payment uh for that so uh way to go and uh you know here we thought um there's absolutely nothing that happens in canada 
uh, that <laughs> everything is just tranquil and calm, but you know, there's all kinds of battles here. The, the bootleggers and the Baptists, uh, there's all kinds of different interests to play. Um, so yeah, congratulations. Uh, good for all the patients of Canada as well. Can't forget that. Uh, very important for them. Uh, look more supply, always going to do better. And you know, there's, there's so much of this that unfortunately is, is happening in many different parts of North America. Um, you know, one thing that I've noticed recently is uh, sports gambling has come back onto the docket in, in many different parts of the United States, um, something that you had a hand in changing in Ontario, David. And there's there are a lot of groups, you know, they're totally against it. And, you know, related to that, I am wholeheartedly willing, if anybody is willing to jump in on this campaign, to end all state-owned and run lotteries. I am absolutely going to start a campaign to end the government ownership of lotteries. I think it is a a terrible, uh, incentive-laden plan to make poor people poorer and to give them some kind of hope at a rich life. Yeah, 100%. It's it's terrible. And not to say I hate lotteries. I love lotteries that are privately run, that have their own incentives, but we should not have it tied to government control and government funding to where... Essentially, we're we're taxing all the people who do very well, and we just get money from the poor people by them buying lottery tickets and hoping that they're going to make it rich. It's yeah. just immoral. It seems it seems rather backwards. It's like, oh, okay, we know that low income people are the ones who play the lottery, so let's take some money from them in the process. <laughs> it's like, um, I don't know if that. I mean, every gas station I'd go to, in the every gas station I went to in the U.S. and I know it's very similar in Canada. You know, it's either uh, retired people, unlimited income, or usually people of uh, modest means who are there scratching off, you know, trying to get their thing. And they're very happy that they can cash in their $3 they won um, from the ticket that they bought for $11. Yeah. You know, the, the math don't work out there. <laughs> I, I, I will Somebody say Somebody is getting and it's them. There is nothing. Well, there, there are some things that are worse, but I will say there is nothing worse then filling up the tank, going into the gas station, and getting stuck behind one of those serial lottery ticket gambler people who has like 11 tickets to check, and they play certain numbers, and they got to pick the scratch card, and it takes them 15 minutes to to uh, go through their whole daily rigmarole of blowing kisses over the tickets as if that's going to make a difference. <laughs> That happens too. But the often gas stations love it. Oh, they yeah, love it. They do because they get they get a cut, so they love it. And you know who gets the bigger cut? Um, the government. Because <laughs> I saw a news article the other day. It was like a you know the winning lottery pot was I don't know let's say a hundred million, uh, but you know of that the IRS actually got fifty million. <laughs> Way to go! Yeah, well that's a that's one difference between Canada and the U.S. Canada does not tax lottery winnings. You don't pay taxes on, um, on like game show winnings or lottery winnings or games of chance. So they they just like take that, the their cut cool. um, from the pot in the beginning, I guess. Yeah, I mean the highest, but the, I mean the difference is the highest. Um, I think that a lot of max can get in Ontario is seventy million, or in Canada is seventy million. That's the national lottery. So seventy million is the highest. The Powerball gets to like over a billion. Yeah, I remember those days. My my parents would do the same. Rush out to the gas station, buy as many tickets as possible. Can you guess the Powerball? 
<laughs> I was watching it on uh, television in South Carolina. We were down at the lake, and uh, it's always at, I think it's 5.59 p.m. They play the lottery numbers, and it's uh, some bureaucrat person who spins the wheel and pops out the ball, and it's like, and now for the next number, 35 on your Powerball. Could you just imagine, like, what's the, here, we'll play a little game. You're, what's the first thing you do when you win $500 million? What are you doing? Well, I would be different from some of these other folks, and I would take the privacy option of, like, never letting my name go out in the public. Uh, because then every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry and family member you've ever had or not had will come out of the woodwork. And I think they've done studies on lottery winners who usually on net end up poorer than before they won because they just spend it all. Uh, it's like NBA players. Yeah. So what would I do? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'd, I, I'd probably just make sure my parents are taken care of and then... Um, make sure that my uh, my daughters are taken care of. I don't think I'd, I'd splurge on, on anything apart from buying a house. <laughs> yeah, so I, yes, I would buy a house. I'd probably discreetly pay off the mortgages of all the people I care about. Um, and then I would rent a 100-meter yacht in uh, off, the, off of southern France or the Amalfi Coast in Italy and have 20 or so of my friends just have a huge rager for a week um but it would be fun to see people try and get on that list I'll oh yeah you. you get so many messages and it's like hey i know i didn't call you back after three years but uh, very happy to make your acquaintance again david uh, my mortgage needs a little bit of topping up uh speaking of topping up we're going to do that with arc mugs and cups here on the consumer choice radio uh, we'll be right back after this much more to come And sing it loud and sing it proud here on Consumer Choice Radio. Come to you on Saga 960 AM and the Big Talker Network. Right there on your podcast apps. Um, if you're not out playing the lottery today, we hope you're uh, enjoying the beautiful sunshine and uh, probably uh, getting burnt to a crisp out there. It's, it's a bit hot pretty much everywhere. I was able to feel the brunt of that southern humidity and heat uh, just uh, a couple days ago. Uh, thankfully, it's a bit cooler here on the European continent. Um, but I'll tell you where it is uh, very steamy right now, David, is uh, down in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. It seems yeah. uh, that uh, former President Trump got himself in uh, some hot water. He'd be in jail. And uh, was yeah. uh, subject to a raid that was greenlit by a local magistrate and apparently signed off by the director of the FBI relating to some confidential documents. There's all kinds of partisan takes on this, uh, but, you know, you can say it's fairly unprecedented, Here's, right? Yeah, un- unprecedented, but here are here is what we know. Here are the um, facts coming to you tonight. The bar, the bar to get to this point is extremely high. So for all of those in Megaland who think this is some political hit job, a Trump-appointed FBI uh, director led the investigation. Trump is being investigated technically about committing a crime, which he increased the penalty for. So he increased the penalty for the removal of classified documents to a felony. 
um, in my opinion, it was like a, a Hillary move um, because what about her emails? Um, and now Was- the Washington Post is reporting that it has something to do with like nuclear codes and all of this stuff that obviously he shouldn't have as a private citizen now. So I don't know how you like, how do you defend that? Like, there's no, like, there's just no defense of that. I mean, there's still a lot for us to understand, and it will come out. I mean, I know Merrick Garland has asked for uh, Trump's approval to unseal the record um, because they need his approval to unseal the record. I think that's a a ballsy play. Um, And then if he does, I mean, you'll see the facts. Um... And you'll see eventually what they found. And, I mean, he could be in a, in a lot of trouble. So I'm going to take the MAGA bootlegger angle on this one, uh, which will, okay. will please a lot of the audience, I'm very sure. <laughs> uh, one thing that's interesting <sighs> about this is, you know, we said, you know, unprecedented. And um, there's, as um, former, or I guess not former, but I guess current uh, majority leader um, on the Democratic side, Chuck Schumer, said, um, if you have a way of uh, pissing off the intelligence agencies, they have six ways from Sunday of uh, striking back. If, when we look at classification of documents, this is actually something that is under the executive branch, and the president has the power, according to the Constitution, to classify, declassify whatever he wants. So I'm actually mad that, that Trump is, did not That decla- is, uh-oh. not necessarily true. Um, of course it is. So that would apply to most things, but it does not apply to anything in regards to the U.S.'s nuclear um, capabilities. So true. That is I'm, I'm not buying. I'm not buying the nuclear code thing. By the way, I think that is okay. being used to elevate what perhaps is contained. Because you know, the second Trump left the lawn, they changed the codes. So what does that matter? And do well, we don't really it depends. Have it could be process, but we don't really have evidence. It could evidence be process. It could be logistics. That's all hearsay. It could be hearsay. Objection. Well, of course it is. I mean, of course it is. But I think the fact that the the attorney general is wanting to unseal the records shows that they feel that it would stand on its own two legs in the public eye. Um, I mean, that would be a pretty serious instance of radical transparency to be like, hey. This is what we think was taken. This is why we searched it. This is why it's a problem. Um, but I mean, the nuclear. I, you got to remember that, like, the U.S. put two people to death in the fifties for selling information on the nuclear program. I don't think that Trump sold information on the nuclear program. But this is like potentially one of the most serious things that the government cares about uh, in terms of crimes against the state. Um, So it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. To be honest now, unfortunately, I think that Trump's going to run again just for the sake of trying to win to save his own bacon, um, which I think is a real disservice. If you're in the Republican establishment, please just pick somebody else and rally behind them. Yeah, I th- well, we can talk about the Trump ad. Uh, quickly, most of this relates to the Presidential Records Act, 1978. 
what a surprise. You know, everything was drafted when it comes to restraining executive power or at least cataloging it after Nixon and everything that happened in Watergate. Uh, but when it, when, I don't know, when it comes to this, you know, perhaps we'll, we'll get the facts and it'll be this. But, you know, how many times have we heard from too many of these people that there's a smoking gun coming and it comes and it's an absolute dud? I don't have that much faith. I think it's kind of crazy that we have this whole back and forth yo-yo with many of the intelligence or police um, institutions, FBI, CIA, whatever. Uh, it's just crazy because it should not be anything partisan. And even if it is not, it's definitely viewed that way. I don't know if the talk radio people yeah, have talked about yeah, this. But Probably who, not. Who, yeah, go ahead. Who politicized the intelligence agencies and the FBI? Like, where does well, this trend start? If we go back, <laughs> it's not Trump did, it's because of Trump. I think the TDS was initiated fairly early on. We know that from the Dunham report, which does show that essentially as soon as, as Trump was making his way, there were talks internally at, at some of the intelligence agencies about, all right, we need to figure out who's connected to what's going on. So it's a bit murky, and there's probably a lot of details that you know won't come to the surface before Bob Woodward writes about it when he's 185 years old, you know, in 20 years. <laughs> but yes. it... it and, you know, I don't necessarily care, you know, how, do, how is this going to be played in fictional television programs, which will probably be the history of record for all intents and purposes. <laughs> anyway, you know, what's the, uh, what's the FBI program yeah. going to be on this, you know, in, in 10 years time or probably less than that, you know, starring Alec Baldwin. Uh, but, you know, with, with all of this, I don't think... Speaking, yeah. speaking of people who may be in jail, Alec Baldwin... <laughs> Speaking of that, he'll do it from from the prison house. Um, it'll be like the uh, the the whole MAGA January sixth prison uh, that apparently was at CPAC with the crying prisoner, uh, which uh, oh god, I'd like to see that there's joke. you know some performance art. You know, it probably wouldn't have been my first choice. Um, stay, you know, planting uh, no. a flag on the January sixth thing is not, I think, the most popular thing to do, and there's a reason why. No. The major media institutions have been having a field day the last week because they can talk about Trump without feeling bad about it and uh, reinsert himself, oh, just in time for the midterm elections. So I don't know. There's a lot of cynicism on all parts. Um, you know, maybe you're on one side or the other, or you just view all of this stuff as very disturbing. <laughs> and you'd rather just yeah. uh, plug away, you know, at your Xbox or PlayStation 5, and uh, I would totally understand In the words that. of our good friend... In the words of our uh, our good friend Bernie Sanders, it is a strange world out there. It is. I don't have that clip at the ready, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I just have my Trump clips today. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think with uh, with too much of this, you know, it's 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 interesting because the background sources, and we're back to this world. I think we we talked before about the banality, you know, the the normalcy. Of, of the normal political cycle and how it works and, you know, small massaging of lies. And, you know, we're kind of back to that. We're back to the journalism game of exclusive sources saying X and Y things. And, you know, nobody's ever punished. Um, speaking of punishment, I was very happy to finally finish, uh, after many weeks, uh, the series on Hulu, The Dropout, about Theranos. Yeah. Uh, did you watch that by any chance? I did. It was very good. Very, very, very good. Very good. 
and good to know that there was or currently ongoing some punishment in the Theranos case. I believe the sentencing for uh, both uh, Balawi and Elizabeth Holmes is like, I think, October, November, yeah. somewhere around there. Yeah. Um, but there are so many people who just were so complicit in all of this. For, I mean, for many different reasons, but well, the, story, the FDA, this... who is happily cracking down on everything, you know, gives them a green light, you know, on their particular thing. Maybe they're lying to regulators, but, you know, it's everything. Yeah, I mean, the story gives you a very good blueprint of how to grease the wheels, who to get on board in order to um, fly under the radar despite rumors that your um, what you are providing is fraudulent. Um, I think that's like the huge takeaway is like how do, how do how do they get to these billion 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 dollar valuations when they really don't have anything to sell and then you just start to look at how the wheels were greased in terms of former politicians and members of the military who were on the board and all of that jazz and then you go oh okay it was basically like fraud through influential people vouching for this woman and this company um, in perpetuity to the point where eventually it exploded and obviously blew up and collapsed to zero. So I don't know if it was the same for you, but I had the benefit of watching this while, you know, having read most of the stories and listening to some of the podcasts. Yeah, I've read uh, the book. My, my wife, who's my... That, oh, there you go, yeah. Bad Blood. Uh, so I was I had the benefit of watching it with my partner, my wife, who had no idea about any of this. Yes. And, you know, to afterwards spend the next hour after the program ended to actually go through the videos. Yes. And like the, why does she talk like that? Yes. That was amazing. Yeah, yeah. The whole throwing her voice thing, like, ah, just so weird. I mean, also, red flag. Like, immediate red flag. That that should have been the, and the tip, like, that should have been the first tip. You've been like, wait a second, why does she talk like that? That's not normal. Okay, let's uh, let's see what's going on here. It's a bit of an indictment of the Silicon Valley VC culture. I mean, you see her sporting a Patagonia vest. Yeah. You know, I'm sure she had Birkenstocks on with socks at some point. Uh, but I did hear from the VC side. Uh, you have David Sachs, who's one of the uh, PayPal Mafia. They have their, their podcast called All In. And he gave kind of a defense in saying that, well, the actual people who invested first off were not the traditional Silicon Valley VCs. They all turned her down because she didn't have the working prototype. And then when essentially there was the fraud, alleged, well, no. Okay, convicted, not sentenced, so we can say that. Okay. <laughs> the yeah, fraud. No, no, fraud. You can say fraud, yes. Okay, yeah. I don't want to get sued here on uh, Consumer Choice Radio because, uh, you know, we don't want to be in a situation. Or, because you'd be in jail. Um, but, you know, to have the traditional VCs at the beginning say no, and then you have all these different money people, and, and then Rupert Murdoch jumps in with his $120 million. I mean, this whole thing is insanity, and what I love is it, it played out in our lifetimes, right? This is, this is like, you know, two news yes. cycles ago. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is a crazy story. It is a crazy story. I mean, it also is crazy because if it was real, right, I think that's also another layer of the fraud. It's like, you wanted it to be real. You wanted the product to be real because it would have transformed the, how healthcare is provided and how diseases are caught radically. Like it would have been a huge disruption in a very, very positive way. The problem is, is that it just wasn't real. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you what is real. Uh, a lot of uh, muckings up about uh, private health care in Ontario and a lot of debates on that. Oh, uh, we'll have to talk about that next week. I know, I know that's a bit of a minefield, and there's all kinds of different yeah. rhetoric. I mean, the I would call it a conspiracy theory, the idea that Doug Ford would, uh, quote, purposefully make the health care system worse to therefore have the pretext to introduce private um, that just seems very insane, but, uh, you know, hey, on Twitter, that'll get you, you know, 80,000 likes and uh, oh, I know. many retweets. I know. It's wild. Yeah. That'll have to be, we'll have to hold that for next week. Yeah, we can't get into it just now, but uh, you guys can continue listening along at consumerchoiceradio.com. We have an archive going back, guys. Uh, you have to remember, an archive going back, you know, 130-something episodes. I hope you guys enjoy it. Plenty of great interviews. Uh, David, I know we'll have more next week. Um, if you're here, you know we'll see you on your on your side. But uh, yeah, until then. <laughs> <laughs>